If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask that you would turn toward the end of Revelation. We actually today are coming to the end of our series in Revelation that we started all the way back in September. This is the 24th and the last message in this series, and we're going to be combining three chapters together uh, in what a theme that develops out of this is that all things become new. Now, I could have taken a few more weeks and really gotten into the details, but I really believe that we can encapsulate these uh, chapters in a way that does not do injustice to the Word and that we can fully get out of it everything that we need. As we approach the Word today, there was a an incident that took place in January the 18th, 1989. Pastor Don Piper was driving home from a church conference that he had attended in Galveston, Texas, when he was hit by an 18-wheeler and he was killed instantly. In fact, he was pronounced dead at the scene by four different sets of EMTs that were there, and his body was in this mangled Ford Escort for over an hour and a half before they could even get to him. It was during that 90-minute period of time that Pastor Piper claims that he visited heaven. An amazing part of the story was that after an hour and a half, another pastor that attended that conference was driving by and got caught up in the traffic of it and felt the Spirit of the Lord tell him, I need you to stop, get out, and go and pray for the person that's in that accident. And as he got up there and realized that everybody said the the person in this car is, is deceased and had been covered up, The Spirit said, pray for him anyway. And so he took a big risk, and he did. And as he prayed, the life came back in uh, to Pastor Piper. But Pastor Piper chronicled his journey to heaven in what became a book that was a New York Times bestseller called 90 Minutes in Heaven. During the time that he was dead, Piper states that he was granted the extreme privilege of glimpsing heaven itself. Now, I have to tell you that I I am rather skeptical at many of the near-death experiences that we hear talked about, but one of the things that fascinated me the most about this was how closely what he describes he saw in heaven is also described in the final three chapters that we read in Revelation. It said that when he took this heavenly detour, he said the first word that comes to his mind was amazing. He said, the moment that I was killed, instantaneously, I was transported into heaven. He said, it was like a smorgasbord for the senses. He said, I, it was beyond what I could encapsulate in words. He says, although I didn't have a body like we normally think of one, He said, I didn't see a single person there that I didn't know. There were relatives. There were friends who had died in high school. There were some of my teachers. All of them, people that I knew had given their life to Jesus before they had died, were now living in heaven. He said, they were smiling. They were embracing me. They were welcoming me. And he said, and then I couldn't help it, but I began to look over their heads He said, and to say that what I saw was glorious and beautiful would be an understatement of all understatements. He said, I saw the looming gates of heaven. He said, the only way I could describe it to people was that the gate looked as if it was sculpted out of mother of pearl. He said, then there was the light. He said, I knew light when I was here on earth, but what I was experiencing there could not be described as anything that we have seen here. He said, it was a light that we could not fathom as human beings. And he said, and then there's the choir. 
He said, there was an angelic choir that seemed, and all of you, depending on what you love the most about singing in church and your style, you're going to love this. He said, this choir seemingly sang every praise song conceivable all at once, and you could understand it all. Now, I kind of like that. (laughs) What an experience. What a sensory overload. What a beautiful and majestic vision of the glory and the light and majesty of heaven. And then the pastor pulled up next to his car, prayed for him, and he was brought back. I wonder, I've often wondered about that. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) I want you to know today that this is where the end of Revelation is taking us, to the reality of heaven. In fact, I believe that heaven is more real than what we have here. I believe that we live in a shadow land, that what we experience with our our senses here will not be able to compare to the real life that has been prepared for those that love and trust God. In fact, the reason I say that is because God didn't create humanity for this earth. He created us to be in relationship with him so that we could spend eternity in heaven. There is an aspect of the creativity of the Holy Spirit that's been deposited within us when we come to know him that will only come alive when we get to heaven. And it tells us in Revelations chapters 20 through 22 that this is the place where God is going to make everything new everything new now I want you to know how glad I am that you've been patient with me because it's been an amazing journey to walk through what can be a rather difficult book to understand and especially in a Sunday morning worship context you know normally you do something like this maybe on on a Bible study setting in a different night but thank you for walking through this with me those of you who are here and those of you who are watching online I hope that what has happened out of this is it has created within you an excitement for eternity, an excitement for heaven. I echo a statement that I made during the very first week that Dr. Jim Bradford made, and again, I want to thank Dr. Bradford and Dr. Wood for the help that they have had in, in helping me formulate so much of this, but here's one of the quotes that was made at the beginning. The details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. The details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. We have seen a lot of difficult details. We've seen numbers. We've seen colors. We've seen dragons. We've seen beasts. We've seen monsters. We've seen angels. We've seen elders. We've seen living creatures with different kinds of faces and wings. And all of these have been vivid images and symbols. And and I have tried to be as honest with you as I could as I've gone through this study that we don't know how much of this to take literally and how much of it is symbolic or figurative. But In each of these situations, as we have gone through this, what we have come to discover is that we serve a God who is merciful. We serve a God that, yes, his righteousness and his judgments are going to come, but he always extends his mercy first. And so we as believers do not have to live in fear. We don't have to look at Revelation and be fearful of what's coming. We look at it and we grow in excitement with what is coming. The message is unmistakable. We started this with three questions that I asked in the very beginning. And I said, these are questions that Revelation is going to answer for us. The first question was this, who are you following? You're faced with a choice. You can either follow the systems of this world, 
living for this world as it is and suffer the consequences of that, or you can become part of the kingdom of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and enjoy the benefits of that. After that question gets answered, we then move to this one. If Jesus is the answer of who you're going to follow, then will you stay faithful even if things get difficult? There are a lot of people who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and their commitment is very shallow. It says, as long as you bless me, as long as I don't have heartache, as long as, as my life is better than everyone else around me, then I will follow you. But the aspect of Revelation that was teaching us is that we need to be faithful through everything once we become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the third question, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in all of this? And that question is answered not only at the beginning of Revelation, but all the way through it, and then right back at the end when it says this, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. I don't know about you, but I've been told that since I was a little kid, but I'm believing we are closer and see the signs today more than ever. Jesus is coming again. It tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, look, he is coming. It tells us at the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 20, when Jesus in his own words says this, yes, I am coming soon. And the last thing Jesus says to us is a direct quote, is I am coming soon. And then John, by now an old man in his 90s, as he's recording all of this, his response to that is, amen. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had days in my life where that has been my prayer. Even so, Lord, please come quickly. Now, there's some of you that I know that you have many things that you want to yet experience in life. And I understand that. I just knew Jesus was coming the night before my wedding. I just knew he was going to do it. <laughs> the older you get, the more you get to the place where, even so, Lord, we are ready to see your face come quickly. So what will the second coming of the Lord mean to our world? For those of you jotting down notes, this will be the first point. The old will be put away. Ironically, there's going to take place something on a global and universal scale that has already taken place within those of us that are followers of Jesus on an individual scale. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone... By the way, I, I just want you to look at this word, anyone. None of you that are here today can feel excluded from this. There's nobody here that is either listening online or sitting here that can say, he didn't mean me. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And the old is gone. The new is here. So this verse to us who have been following the Lord is, is an individual microcosm of what he is talking about in Revelation that he's going to do universally. What it means to us is that the moment that I received Jesus as my Savior, he came into me, he cleansed me from all my sin, washed it away, my past is gone, I've been made a brand new creature, that he indwells me and lives within me and motivates me through life. Revelation talks about what it's going to be like when all of us who have had that happen from the beginning of time to the end of time get together. What a celebration it's going to be when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. The old is gone. 
The new is here. So what he's done within our life, he's now going to do universally. In fact, Revelations 20 through 22 chronicle for us the same thing happening, not just in us, but in the world at large. He's going to take away everything that we see here, and it's going to be brand new. The old is going so that the new can come. Last week in Revelation 19, we saw Jesus coming in power and glory and might to, to finally put a period on human existence. And then we move into chapter 20, and in verses 1 and 2, it says this, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, earlier in this series, we talked about the fact that God has no opposite. He is incomparable. And I believe that is reinforced for us here in the fact that it didn't take Jesus to come and bind up Satan. All it took was an angel. An angel binds him, throws him into the abyss. Remember when the abyss was unlocked and the demonic, demonic presence that came flying out? Well, he's going to be thrown in that. And an angel does this to him and, and holds him for a thousand years. This initiates for us what we call the millennial reign. Jesus reigning and ruling on earth with us. The Old Testament prophecies about this time talk about that the plowshares and the military equipment are going to be turned into a farm equipment for producing food. The lion and the lamb, which have traditionally not been the most friendly with one another, will lie down together. A thousand years of peace will break out where Christ, having come back to this world, will reign and Satan's power and influence will have been bound and he is cast into the abyss until the end of the thousand years. And interesting enough, we would think at that point, why would you ever let him out again? Have any of you ever thought about that? Here's why. He needs to be let out at the end of this thousand years for just a brief time. And the reason is that he is going to have to lead a rebellion. But it tells us in Romans 3.19, the reason is so that in the end, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Let me explain this to you. We are living in a day and age right now where there are all kind of different people proclaiming different issues, saying that if everybody just had the same opportunities, if there was equality of everything across this whole world, regardless of your environment or your family background, if everybody had the same chances in life, what would happen is that the goodness of man's heart would rise up. And we would be able to create this utopia from the goodness of man's heart. But because there are those that are being held down or lack of education or knowledge or the economy, whatever it is, because of that, there are those that that unlocks within them the dark side of humanity. And because they've been held down, they break forth. And that's where evil comes from. That if everybody just lived in a world that was peaceful and equitable, nobody would do bad things. The millennial reign is going to shut the mouth of everybody who believes that. And here's why. Looking at the millennial period of time, which is saying that for a thousand years, there's going to be justice and peace on earth. For a thousand years, Christ is going to reign and there's going to be prosperity. For a thousand years, the lion and the lamb will lay down together. For a thousand years, snakes will bite maybe, but it won't hurt you. And after a thousand years of incredible peace, Incredible prosperity 
every single person for a thousand years will have gotten exactly the same opportunity. And then Satan will be let out. And in the little bit of time that he has, he is going to prove that the hearts of man, even in a perfect situation, are wicked. Because he will create an army of those he deceives. And when you think about it, Satan is a fallen angel from heaven who took a third with him. So if, if the perfection of heaven wasn't good enough for them, why do we think that the perfection of a thousand years on earth is good enough for us to reveal a good heart? The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. And after this golden age, persons will still walk away from God and still listen to the tempter. In spite of everything being equal on earth, Satan will still deceive the human race and rebelliousness in the human hearts against God, which is an incurable disease without Jesus. And he marshals an army to march against Christ. This also speaks of this. Jesus wants to be chosen, not because of the circumstances of the world, but by a choice of your own heart. And those that will have had the perfection of a thousand years are still going to have to choose Jesus or choose Satan because everybody that enters into the gates of heaven will have done so because they chose Jesus. And the end of time comes, the battle of fire comes from heaven, Satan loses. And it tells us in verse 10 of chapter 20, and the, dev and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tor tormented day and night forever and ever. So finally, after this thousand years of peace, Satan is let out for a short period of time. He deceives people. He then is judged. He is thrown into the lake of fire himself along with the false prophet, and the, the, which is the anti-Holy Spirit, the, the anti-Christ, and everyone who follows them. Listen, hell was not made for people. Hell was made for Satan but it will be open for all of those who follow him. You and I don't want to go Satan's way, but here is the good news of all of this. Satan is part of the old ways, the old order of things that is cast away, that is put aside. The old is gone. Behold, everything becomes new. Here's what that means to you and I. We are living in a place today where your past does not determine what you will become tomorrow. You are in a position today where the grace of Jesus Christ can intercept your life at this very moment and you may have walked into this place under the burden and the guilt of everything that you have been carrying. Today is the day where Jesus is going to lift that off of your shoulder. He's going to breathe new life into you. You're going to become brand new and you're going to walk out of this place with joy because the old is gone. Behold, the new has come in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Your past does not determine who you will become when you intersect the grace of Jesus Christ. Second thing we learn is that the new will come. This is what's described for us in chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then there's these interesting words. And there was no longer any sea. Now, I, I looked at that and I went, why is that the first thing that John notices? When he sees the new heaven and the new earth, I don't see any water. 
I don't see any sea there. I believe that it's both symbolic and, and also probably to him a, a physical sense has a meaning. Here's what it means symbolically. If you've been with us during this study, you'll know that there was a time when Satan as a dragon is standing on the seashore and he's looking out over the sea and it was from the sea that the Antichrist came out of. That beast came there. So what John is saying to us symbolically is this. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no evil that will ever emerge in heaven or on earth. The places where that may have emerged are no longer there. So symbolically, evil has no place. In the physical sense for John, you have to remember now, he's a 90-something-year-old man, and he's on an island surrounded by water, separated from everybody he loves. And so he's looking, the first thing he sees is, hey, I can get out of here. There's no sea. There's nothing separating me. And so it represents to us that all of the barriers in the new heavens and the new earth of the fellowship and communication have been taken away forever. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. As he begins to describe the beauty of what he sees, he, he mentions two different things, and the first one is not the physical beauty of the place, but it's the relational beauty that he mentions. As he describes it coming down, he says this, God himself is going to be with his people, and he will be their God. In other words, the most beautiful thing about the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, is that God is there, and we get to be with him, seeing him face to face. The word that is used here for dwelling is, is an Old Testament word. It's, it, it can be interpreted as tabernacling. And so he is tabernacling with his people. In John 1.14, it says, The word, which was Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. He gathered together with us. He came to where we are, and he would never leave us. And so we see this, and what John is describing to us as this beautiful city comes down is that God's presence is pervasive and it's perpetual in its existence. It never leaves anymore. We no longer are limited to the single presence of Jesus or even the ministry of the Holy Spirit because God himself is with us. And then it describes it this way. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making everything new. You know, sometimes it's interesting that the way we describe heaven is describing things that won't be there. You're not going to be able to cry there for long. Everything that causes you here on earth to wake up in the morning and groan when you're getting out of bed won't be there. Everything that causes you not to be able to fall asleep at night because of the, the intense anxiety won't be there. Everything that has caused you to have to say goodbye to loved ones, that, the, the, the fear the, and, and all of the groaning that comes with that won't be there. In fact, the first thing that God does when he comes down, he says, let me just take the memory of all of those things away as I wipe the tears from your eyes. And there's this description of not only of the relational beauty, but the beauty of it is coming down. And I begin to recognize we literally are looking at a chapter that could be as much water as an ocean, and we've got a thimble to try to understand it. 
But the benefits of God's presence will be that you will have no pain, no fear, no anxiety. Everything that has bothered you in this life is dead and gone, and behold, all things become new because he's putting it into a new environment. The first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Now, I have a little problem with that just from this perspective. For those of you that are like me that like to lay down at night and just look up into the stars and the sky, I had a lot of galaxies that I wanted to visit when I get to heaven. There are some things that I really want to get a close look at. And what God is saying is, oh, if you think that's good, wait till I start over. If you wanted to see those, I'll show you pictures. But, <laughs> but the creativity of what I've got for a new earth and a new heaven you're going to begin to realize you didn't start living till you got here. So great is his creative power. So everything we see here is going to replace, and it, it fulfills a prophecy that's found in Isaiah 65, 17, when it says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Is there any of you that has some memories that you'd just like to never remember again? Isn't that a great promise? nor will they ever come to your mind. In other words, we will be incapable of remembering the things that cause us pain. Oh, hallelujah. And so then John captures to the best of his ability the sight of this city, that it's something new and it's grander than anything that he's ever seen before because the old is gone and it's being replaced by something different. And so he begins to describe this physical beauty in verses 10 through 16 when it says this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. I, I love that part because what was coming down was so big that he had to get way, way back on the top of a mountain just to catch the scale of it. He said, and it showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious stone, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, you need to understand that what they call a jasper, clear as crystal, is probably what we call a diamond today. And so the image that he's getting is there is this diamond-looking city that is coming down, and it's glowing from within. It doesn't require light on the outside. The light is blowing forth from the inside of it. It had great high walls with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. By the way, if your measuring stick is gold, you're talking about something pretty good. Its gates and its walls, and the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, and he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So first of all, he has this view as it's coming down, just like we do when we're driving and we get near a city. The first thing we notice is not the details, but we notice the skyline. And so he sees the skyline of this city that is coming down, and, and he begins to tell us in the verses of, of all the things that are happening there. And, and he suggests to us that this city is more beautiful than the most beautiful stone that they could remember at that time. He's never seen anything like it. And then as it comes down, the details of it begin to be enlightened to him. And one of the things that he says, which I find really fascinating here in the scripture is this. 
Every gate had an angel there. Now, the angels were not there to let you in or out because the gates are always open because everybody is there because they've had a relationship with Jesus. So why are the angels there? I believe that the angels are there to provide grace and dignity to the place. And each of the gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying to us that the inclusion of the people in the city will be both from the Old Testament from the beginning of time all the way through into the New Testament saints that are there. All of us from all time will be gathered together in the city of God and God himself is there. Everything is new. Everything is better than we could ever dream it to be and here we are all together. William Barclay was talking about these gates and as a theologian, he was looking at that and he says, I, I wonder if maybe the gates weren't mentioned and specifically where they were because they don't represent different things to us, such as this. He said the eastern gates, for example, are mentioned. He said the east is a place of the dawn. It's of the rising sun. He said, I believe that these gates represent those who came to Jesus Christ when they were children or young adults. He said at the beginning of their life, They've lived their whole life from the time as the sun was rising so that they did not grow up with the scars of the world and so they enter in in the eastern gates representing their whole lives have been dedicated to the pursuit of Jesus. He said then after that, he talks about the north gates. He said the, the north to us that are reading this would remind us of the bitter winter winds and the chill of life, which represents those who came to Christ in difficult circumstances. When it seemed as if maybe you were all alone and the difficult times you finally yielded yourself to the Lord, he said it also might mean those that didn't approach the Lord through the emotions but came through him very much in, in a way of thinking through the process, rationalizing all of this out. And those northern gates were for you. He said the southern gates represents the land that is warm with the wind that is blowing and it's gentle and soft. He says this to me represents those who were wooed to Christ through their emotions. And it was an emotional response to his love that brought you in. And as a result of that, we have these southern gates that represent the way you came to Christ. And then he says, lastly, we were told about the western gates. He said, the western side is where the sun sets. He said, this represents the people that may have come to Christ at the last minute. I think of the thief on the cross who stood there that day and said to Jesus, would you remember me today at the last moments of his life? I have had the privilege through the years of being a pastor of holding hands with people on their deathbed and watching them come to Jesus Christ at the last minute because while there is yet breath, there is yet opportunity. And the western gates may very well represent those who came in the last moments. I don't know if this is precisely what John had in mind, but I think it's a beautiful symbol to show the fact that the gates are always open as long as it is day. And then in verses 15 through 17, John points us to the magnitude of this new Jerusalem, talking about the, the size of it all. And I think sometimes we lose something if we don't translate the size into miles. So I did a little research this week just to try to figure out how big the new Jerusalem would be in comparison to something that we might be able to hold its scale to. So it would be this. If you started the new Jerusalem at New York City in the top northeast corner 
it would go south all the way to the southern shore of Cuba. And then from the southern shore of Cuba, it would go directly to the west, all the way to West Texas. And from West Texas, moving north on its, its western border, it would go all the way into eastern Montana. And then from eastern Montana, cutting straight across its northern border, all the way back to New York City. And then it says that each of the 12 levels of something that appears to be a square, there's been some commentators that think it's a pyramid. Both of those may fit, but I'm believing that as you look at it as a square, each level, for those of you that may live on the first floor apartment and the people that are always walking above you, you hear their feet, each level is 120 miles thick to the next level. So for those of you who are thinking, I'm gonna get ripped off when I get to heaven about how big of a living space I'm gonna have. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and then the rest of that chapter goes on to describe the building materials that God is using. And then we come to the last chapter, 22. And it's a final invitation. Do you remember that we said God is God of justice but he's also a God of mercy? I love the fact that while there's yet time, the invitation is always given. So let me read for you Revelation chapter 22, beginning with verse 7 through the end of the book. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. I love that response. Even though he knows only God is to be worshiped, so grand was what he had seen that he fell down. The angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I don't know about you, but I love rewards. I, I think this is going to be fantastic. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves, who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16, I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from the words of this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. 
He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And amen. And amen. Kim, if you'd please come. Today you have been invited by God to have everything be made new, to be in relationship with him. He does a work in your life that you cannot do in your own. But you're going to have to open the door for him just a little bit. I recognize that there are some of you that are skeptics. There are some of you that are agnostics. There are some of you that are atheists. There are some of you that just don't believe. But what I'm asking you today, just open the door a crack and watch what God will do. Jim Bradford tells the story of a popular novelist by the name of Andrew Clavin. Andrew was, way, was raised in a Jewish home and in a Jewish family, but he was a non-practicing Jew. He described himself for the first 45 years of his life as a philosophical agnostic, but a functional atheist. But he writes in a book about his journey to eventually encounter Christ. He said, how could a 45-year-old atheist start a journey to confront Christ? He says, it's because at some point, I made a decision to open my life just a crack to see what God's capacity was to make all things become new. He said, looking back on my life, I see that Christ had been beckoning me at every turn, even when I ignored him. And finally, when I was in my mid-40s, lying on a bed one night while I am reading a book by Patrick O'Brien, one of his great seafaring adventure novels, in my hand, I was intrigued by one of the characters I was reading about. He said, this character who I have grown as I was reading the book to admire before he went to bed at night said a prayer. He said, interesting enough... In my mind, I thought, if this character that I admire can say a prayer before he goes to sleep at night, so can I. And Andrew took that book, closed it, and laid it beside his bed, and he whispered a simple three-word prayer. Thank you, God. That was all he said. He said, looking back, it was the prayer of a self-impressed intellectual, a hesitant experiment with faith but God's response to me was an act of extravagant grace he said listen just give God a chance all he needs is a chance he just needs an opening for those of you that may not believe any of this for those of you listening online or watching online just Give him a little opening. Just say, if you're real, and if your grace is real, then I'm going to give you one chance, God, because that's all he needs is one chance. And Andrew's hesitant experiment of faith changed him. He writes, I woke up the next morning, and everything had changed. 
Everything in my life had come alive. It was the first step that led to many steps that finally brought me to a place of surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. He said, I now know the joy of having my sins forgiven. And the Spirit of God came in and lives within me, changed everything. And it started by just giving God a chance when I didn't think he was really there. So stand with me, please, this morning, if you would. I can't think of a better way to finish this series that's gone on since September than with the invitation of the end of the Bible that says, come, come. So I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes, if you would, and and bow your heads. And as has become our tradition during this period of time, I'm going to start with your left side, my right side. And if you're here today and you're ready to just open the door to the existence of God and his love and his grace in your life just a little bit and you're ready to receive him as your savior, would you, would you just simply look at me and I'm going to simply agree with you. I'm just going to agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Anyone else? You're just going to give him a chance. Moving now into left center, my right center. You're ready today to just open the door a little bit. Yes, you may have doubts, but give him a chance. His invitation is to come. Come. And you can enter into all of this. Everything will be made new. Are you willing today? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Moving now into the right center. This is your moment. God is knocking on the door of your heart. He's knocking because he loves you. He's knocking because he can't wait to change you. He's knocking because he wants to forgive you. He's knocking because he wants to be in relationship with you and take care of you for eternity. He comes as a God that gives. Will you give him a chance today? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Moving all the way over now to the far right, my, my left. Yes, sir, I agree with you. into the overflow will you give him a chance your Easter next week can be marvelous yes sir I agree with you I see that hand as you enter in yes ma'am I agree with you as you enter in to a brand new life because he comes to make everything new I'm going to ask the elders to begin to make their way down to the front right now this morning and as they do let me pray with the rest of you Father God, I am so grateful for the response of hearts that just like Andrew say, you know what? I may come with doubts and fears. Pastor, if you knew me, you would think not even God can save me, but yet the word of God tells me that if I just give him a chance, I'm going to have a chance to see what his capacity is to bring new life to me. And there were many that responded this morning, Lord. Some of them may be guests of other people. Some of them may have been here for a while. But Lord, it's in that chance when they said yes to you, I pray now that your extravagant grace would blow the doors off their life. That the love and mercy that you pour into them at this moment would just pull the chain and and the plug of everything that has kept them feeling like they weren't good enough and feeling like they weren't worthy and it would just drain like an oil change out and that you would refill them with your presence and your love and your mercy and that the world would look new from this moment forward. 
because they accepted the invitation to come. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this journey through Revelation, which takes away our fear, builds our confidence, and trust that we are about to see the real world come because we trust in you. Lord, for the remainder of us that may already be in relationship with you, or maybe there are those here today that were just unimpressed by your presence, didn't feel the need at all to respond, I pray, God, that you would be patient with them. Please don't require their soul before they've had another opportunity to make this decision. Because while there's breath, there's hope. And Lord, we pray your blessing on each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we said, amen.